Once in seminary, I had a, um, I was in a preaching class, and Dr. Saul Dean uh, was my professor. And um, at the conclusion of my sermon, she said, wow, that was a great six-week sermon series. So, <laughs> so I'm conscious of that today. Um, I'm going to try and zoom through. I've got a lot of points to make today. I'm going to try and zoom through them and then try to, to tie them all up at the end. So, uh, so hang with me if you can. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this eventually. We did get an extra hour today, so there's that. So, um, so, uh, we are in a series today, uh, uh called Questions. And the idea is we're looking at the, the difficult questions that people um, have presented the church. Um, I think is socially it's more acceptable to ask questions than it used to be maybe 50 or 100 years ago. And so people are asking them. And increasingly the church needs to answer them because silence is not interpreted charitably. Um, uh, people don't say, oh, well, I shouldn't have asked that question. They say, no, you should have an answer for it. And so the church has to answer. But one of the things that we find as we engage with these questions is they are actually good questions. And so the questions we've been looking at so far, we looked at the virtuous heathen, and the idea there is what happens happens to people who who don't know Jesus when they die and the answer we saw is is, is that God tells us that um, that he has a plan for them that includes us and he will not let us off the hook and say I'll take care of them don't you worry about it uh, he says you do the part I told you to do and as for the rest there is a need to know basis here and you don't need to know what's going to happen to the virtuous heathen so that's the place we began with and then last week we looked at truth claims and what we what we saw is that the world is filled with competing truth claims. Everybody has an idea of what's what's true. All the different religions in the world and non-religious belief systems, atheism, um, are all belief systems. And nobody is in a privileged position. Essentially, everybody is like the blind man uh, feeling his way around the elephant. Right? We don't know. We don't know what this is. And nobody's in a position to stand off to one side and say, "Oh, you fools! It's an it's an elephant." Because nobody knows. And so the best thing we can do uh, in, in the face of competing truth claims is say, okay, I hear you. I'm respectfully listening to you as you tell me, to you, this thing seems like it's a snake. Um, but to me, it seems like it's a tree trunk or whatever the different parts of the elephant are. That, that we should hold our ground. We should not be silent and say, well, I'll tell you what, if you think it's a snake, I'll just be quiet, even though to me it seems like a tree trunk. We should be respectful, but at the same time, we should help people understand what it is that we perceive the truth to be. So that's how we looked at truth claims. And today we're going to look at faith. Um, because, because, uh, today, particularly for the, the celebrity atheists who are out there, faith is a dirty word. Faith is not a word that, that people should, should do anything with. That everything should be based on hard, cold facts. That, that, um, that facts don't care about your feelings. Things like that. So, what we're gonna do today is answer the question, or attempt to answer the question, why is faith, of all things, a virtue? Why would God pick faith and make that the, the virtue? as opposed to, you know, rigorous inquiry and, and understanding the nature of reality. Why is it that faith is a virtue and not um, the search for evidence? Shouldn't people wait for evidence? So we're going we're gonna to take that apart. First of all, shouldn't people wait for evidence? The answer is yes, people should, should wait for evidence. What they should not do is wait for certainty. As we look at the scriptures, we see this all through the New Testament. People... Um, 
all essentially every Christian you can think of in, in the Bible or outside of it uh, waited for evidence that that there are people maybe who think that that Christianity is all about a blind faith that you should just kind of take a a, a, a blind jump out into the unknown and believe um, without any evidence at all that's not the picture we see in the scriptures what we see in the scripture is over and over again people are seeking evidence for their faith the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he says, he, he quotes a, a line from the Hebrew scriptures that says, uh, all who, who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he says, how can they believe in him? How can they call upon that name if they've never heard of him? That, that nobody is expected to just kind of intuit, uh, what it is that they should know about God. That, that there is a role for people to become convinced of what it is they should believe. There's a story in Mark's, uh, uh, Luke's account of the, the, the life of Jesus. He says, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything that Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expected, or should we keep looking for someone else? No less an authority than John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, was wondering is this the one I should put my trust in? And Jesus went on to say about John that there was never in history a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So if John the Baptist looks for evidence, so can you. So can all of us. The people, if you think of the Easter morning accounts, the, the women come back from the tomb and they say that the Lord has risen. And instead of being like good Christians and saying he has risen indeed, they say that's a lot of bunk and they don't believe it. But Peter jumped up and went to the tomb to look. People in the Bible looked for evidence. They sought evidence. Evidence is a fine thing. That day, uh, the, the disciples were meeting together in the upper room, and they bumped into um, uh, Thomas was there. Uh, Thomas was not there. And when they told him later that Jesus came to us in the upper room, uh, Thomas said, I don't believe you. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the wound in his side, unless I can look at the wounds in his hands. I won't believe it. So a week later, Jesus showed up, and he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Put your finger in my side. He said, obtain the evidence you need. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. So wait for evidence, but not for certainty. The reason you can't wait for certainty is because we are all incredibly good at moving goalposts. That, that you know... If you don't really want to believe something, if you're finding it hard to believe something, if it sounds unbelievable to you, my guess is you will you will succeed at making it unbelievable, no matter what kind of evidence you ask for. So decide what evidence you need to convince yourself, and then be satisfied when you have that. Now, the second part of the question, why is faith a virtue? Why is faith virtuous? What's virtuous about faith? And to answer that question, first of all, we need to look at the answer. Uh, we need to look at a different question, which is, what is faith? And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us what faith is. Faith is the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. The idea there is that is that we have a mental picture of how the world could be. That something in my own life, something in the world as a whole, I have a picture of something. That is what I'm hoping for. And faith is essentially the distance between the present reality and that picture. That faith is the thing that that enables us to see that, to say that's not just a passing fantasy, that is actually something that can be, 
that faith is the thing that says that is actually a possibility. Maybe not because of human effort, but because of divine effort, that that hope I have is actually possible. So that's the definition of faith. And that is why it's virtuous. Because as we hope for things, that gives us, that gives God a place to work. We read in the, the gospel according to Mark, Mark tells us that when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, um, he had been doing miracles everywhere else, but when he got to his hometown, everybody looked at him and they said, oh, you know, you're so cute, I remember when you were just this high, and they couldn't believe that Jesus had any capability to affect the change that they were hoping for. Because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them, except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. That Jesus was unable to do miracles because of their unbelief. And Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Jesus was amazed at the unbelief. Now, by contrast, there's another story Mark tells us. Um, uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there was a man with leprosy who came to Jesus and knelt in front of him begging to be healed. He said, he said, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. He had a hope. He said, it is, it is a possibility for me to be cleaned from my leprosy. I have a hope that's out there. My faith enables me to to picture that that different reality. Everybody's told me leprosy is unhealable, but I believe that it is possible with God. And Jesus, if he wishes, can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus reaches out and touches him. I am willing, he says, be healed. What makes faith virtuous is it allows Jesus to transform people. Jesus is able to transform people. Jesus is able ultimately to transform all of reality, the entire world, because of faith. So, how do we get faith? Oh, wait, I'm sorry, one more. Um, one more from Hebrews. Um, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, right after defining faith, the writer tells us, it is impossible to please God without faith. That anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists. We would expect that part. But what else must you believe? That God rewards those who sincerely seek him. You know, I don't know how many of us think that God rewards that. Maybe we kind of feel guilty that, that, you know, that, that somehow it's a wrong thing to expect a reward from God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that that is critical to having the kind of faith that pleases God. To believe that God actually can act to change the world for the better. To change us for the better. So, how do we get faith? Well, I'm going to go, the, the, the next four points are going to be my, my best uh, way to summarize how we get faith. Ultimately, faith is a gift, but um, the first step, as we talked about, is to get evidence. So what kind of evidence? What kind of evidence should we get? And this is the place where if you're having a conversation with an atheist, they're going to say, well, you know, did you have a burning bush? Did you have a talking donkey? Did you have a road to Damascus? You know, did you have one of the examples that we see in the scriptures of the way that people came to, to change their thinking about God? Did you have that experience? My, my problem with that question is that as far as we know, the only people who ever received that kind of a vision of God were the people that are listed in the Bible as having received it. There's no reason to believe anybody but Moses ever in the history of the world has received that vision of a burning bush. There's no reason to believe that, so why would we expect it to be normal? There's no reason to believe anybody but Balaam ever had a donkey talk to them. There's no reason to believe, believe that anybody but Paul was ever stopped in their tracks on the road to Damascus by a blinding light and the risen Christ. Those are not the normal way people come to faith. How do people normally come to faith? Well, the answer is 
they come to faith from other people. And I think the reason is this. Some of you, um, uh, if you're a science fiction geek, anybody? All right, there's one, two hands. All right, a couple. All right. So I'm a science fiction geek, and this is this is one of the uh, Arthur C. Clarke. He wrote the the story for 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, so he said this. This is one of his rules of thumb he used when he was writing science fiction. He said, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." Here's what I mean by that. This phone. This phone. Um, they didn't exist 15 years ago. Smartphones didn't exist 15 years ago. And uh, 15 years before that, cell phones didn't exist. So imagine if somebody would show up today with, the, with the, the cell phone of 30 years from now. I have no idea what it would do, but it would be the next best thing to magic. I would look at it and say, I didn't know that was even imaginable, that, that in 30 years' time, cell phone, cell phone technology will, will just baffle us. But there's a corollary to that which is that any magic is indistinguishable from sufficiently advanced technology. right? When you hear the story of the burning bush, if somebody came up to you and said, I had a burning bush appear to me and tell me to take off my sandals, and that was strange because I wasn't wearing sandals. If somebody came up to you and said that, you would probably think technologically. You'd say, well, actually, I was reading an article that said that there's a type of plant that the leaves glow in the dark. Or We would come up with a technological explanation. And this is how we get into the business of moving the goalposts. That ultimately, that I don't think God gives many people that kind of, that kind of miraculous um, uh, uh, vision because we're so good at explaining it away. We come up with a technological explanation for it um, that makes magic turn into technology. So what does God do? God gives us testimony. And the testimony of other people is evidence, despite what some people might have you believe. And what we see throughout the scriptures, this is the normal way people come to faith. We read the story of the woman at the well. She had a name. We don't know what her name was. When we get to heaven, we can talk to her. Um, But um, many Samaritans from her village believed in Jesus, not because they saw Jesus doing any miracles, not because they even talked to Jesus, but because she went back to the village and she told the people in the village about this encounter she had with Jesus. He told me everything I ever did. Jesus himself tells the church, this is what we are for, that you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the plan, not um, you will stand off to one side while I you know, cause bushes to burn into flames um, all around the world. You will be my witnesses. The writer of the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus did many miraculous signs in his disciples' presence. There's, if, if you want miracles, I could tell you about miracles, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a testimony. He says, those signs are not recorded in this scroll, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that by believing you will have life in his name. John tells us, I could tell you about miracles, but miracles won't convince you. Ultimately, what you're going to want is testimony from someone. So, the first thing is to get the evidence. And then, this is hard, right? To have belief, you must believe. So, what is that? What do I mean by that? To have faith, we must rethink what we will trust. We must rethink what we will trust. The truth is, most of us trust, you know, me, right? I trust me. I look out for number one, and my guess is so do you, that... When the chips are down, you assume the only person you can count on to help you, if you want the job done right, you have to do it yourself. And that's what we have to rethink. We have to rethink that notion. Um, The Apostle Paul tells the people in, in the church in Ephesus, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. 
He says, that's the bitter pill. You would love to take credit for it. I would love to take credit for it. I'd love to somehow make it my doing. And Paul says, no, it is a gift from God that that's just the way it is. In the, in the Proverbs, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the, the writer of the Proverbs says, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not depend on your own understanding. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and he told people, teach those who are rich in the world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, right? This is what we do. We trust in things. And in particular, we trust in money. He says, don't do that. Don't trust in your money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. He says, but who's going to look out for me? If I don't look out for number one, if I don't amass wealth or or education or prestige or power in order to take care of me, who will take care of me? Peter tells us, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. He cares about you. That That is ultimately what we have to rethink. We have to rethink the idea that only I care about me. We have to come to trust in something other than me and the power and the wealth that I can amass. We have to trust in something else. And that something else is actually a someone else. It's Jesus. Mark tells us the story about a synagogue leader named Jairus. His daughter was dying. He sent word to get Jesus to heal him. And Jesus was actually on his way there, but Jesus got interrupted and held up along the way. And before he could get to the house, people came and said, it's too late, the daughter, your daughter is dead. And Jesus overheard them. And he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. You had faith a couple of minutes ago. Keep the faith. Paul says to Timothy, I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. He says, I am sure. That's the faith statement. He says, I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure. So once you have faith, once you have faith, what should you do? You should seek to deepen it. You should understand deeper. So, How do I put that? Growing in understanding is half of discipleship. Growing in understanding is the first half of discipleship. Jesus tells a parable, the seed in the rocky soil represents those who heard the message and immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. That belief is not enough. You must put down roots. You must allow that word to become a deeper part of your understanding. He says, we begin as children. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children, like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. But what do children do? Children grow up. The Apostle Paul says, I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. You can't stay in that childlike state. You can't be like a nursing baby who can only have milk. You must eventually be willing and able to grow in understanding. So growing in understanding is an important part of uh, our faith. And Paul tells us that we must let God transform us into a new person by changing the way we think, that ultimately this is where our faith will will deepen. And he says, when we do that, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and perfect, and uh, good and pleasing and perfect. And uh, James writes, James, the brother of Jesus, he writes this, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. That there, there may be questions where God doesn't give you the answer, but he will never rebuke you for answering. So seek understanding. So we believe first, then we understand as much as we can. 
But I said that that's half of discipleship. What's the other half? Well, it's to act. You know, how many people will go to one more Bible study? That they can they can go to Bible study after Bible study their whole life, but they never actually act on their belief. They're they're growing it super deep, but they don't actually act. And we cannot have mature faith until ultimately we put it into practice. Faith requires us to trust, yes, but we have to trust before we leap. We must ultimately act on our faith. Paul says we live by believing and not by seeing. That ultimately we have to say that hope is out there. Faith is the place, faith faith spans the gap between my hope and now I must act on my faith. In the letter, second letter of Peter, he tells us this, in view of all this, all the things he said up to this point, he says, make every effort to respond to God's promises. It's not enough to know the promises. Yes, they're great promises, but it's not enough to simply know them. We have to respond to them. James tells us, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of safe, can that kind of faith save anyone? Paul says, he's in prison. He says, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. He says, ultimately, we must put into practice what it is we believe. So, the best definition I've seen of faith in a secular context or in a um, outside of the Bible is this from Alistair McGrath. He's a theologian in England. He says, faith without, faith is not belief without proof, which is, I think, what a Sam Harris or a Daniel Dennett might think it is. Faith is not belief without proof. Faith is trust without reservation. Trust without reservation. I will act on what it is I have come to believe because I trust the person of God. So now, I want to try to, that's six points. It was too much for me to get through, and I'm going to take just a moment longer to hopefully Put it together in a way that's very memorable. And the reason I know it's memorable is because you already know it. It's the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure very few of you heard it for the first time when Tom read it earlier. Most of us have heard this story before. This is a great picture of faith. The faith of the young man. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home. I have evidence. I used to live there. I saw the way my dad treated his um, hired hands. I have evidence. Right? I'm not believing without evidence. He says, I know something about my father. He says, at home, even the fa- hired hands have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. And he says, I will go home. I'm going to act on what it is that I know. Maybe we could say he came to understand his father better when he went to a place where his father wasn't. That that out there, sitting in the pig pen, covered with pig manure, he came to realize something. He came to have deeper faith in his father because he got a contrast. Growing up in that household, he never knew what his father could do. But now he does. So what does he do? He puts his faith into practice. He acts. So he... He um, formulates this theory. His theory is actually wrong. He says, I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me on as your hired hired servant. He is wrong. His father will not take him on as a hired servant. But he's right about what matters. He has a better picture. He has a hope for a better future. And God actually expands upon that. So when his, when he gets home, 
His father says, whoop. His father says to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his feet. His father outdoes his expectation. But the reason he's able to do it is because he has faith. He has faith in who his father is. He grew up knowing what his father was like. He got out into the world, found out what the rest of the world is like. He understood his father better because of that. And then he acts. He says, I could theorize all day long sitting here in the pig pen. But the way that I will actually know is if I go to my father's house. And when he gets there, his father transforms him. His father turns him from a beggar at the door to a son. He gets the finest robe and he gets a ring and sandals. His father transforms him. Faith is what enables Jesus to transform people. So faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks um, that that faith is a virtue that we can all practice. That um, that it is sufficient to begin as a child, to have the, the faith of a child, but that faith must grow and deepen. Lord, help us to remember that our faith is not in the Bible. The faith is not in the church. The faith is not in any created thing. The faith is ultimately and always in you as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help us always to hold on to that faith. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.